0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I inherited most of my fears from my mom. That's the truth. And she inherited those fears from her parents that are Holocaust survivors. So it's not really her fault. My grandparents were in concentration camps for years, and they lost most of their family members, like even their parents, in the camp. So that's very traumatic for anybody, and they were able to survive, and then they were taken to Venezuela, so super random country for them. They come from Europe. They didn't speak the language or understand the culture or anything. They had to start from zero, but they were full of fears and traumas, and then they had my mom. And they raised her the best they could. But that's that's it. That's the best they could. You know, that's what she knew. So even though she is a psychologist and she could empower other people to understand their life better and want to face her own fears, she's still a human.
4: Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class, all-in-one robot vacuum, for only $799. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to
5: get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes... Only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello, listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection. To find the person you can rely on, the one that's there every week, month, or year, and always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With ACAST podcast ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie, and avoid those red flags and time wasters. Your ads can communicate with them in the most intimate way possible. A one-on-one conversation, a chance meeting in the gym or a coffee shop. So go on, give it a try. With over hundreds of thousands of listens a month, your person is probably here. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com to get started.
0: Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Michelle, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So, I was introduced to you by way of Patrick McGinnis, who told me about the work that you are doing uh, around fear, which uh, I think I have found is a huge issue, particularly for many creatives. But um, before we get into all that, uh, I want to start by asking you where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: Wow. Deep question right off the bat. I like it. Um, So, I grew up in. Caracas, Venezuela in Latin America. Uh, for the, for the first 19 years of my life, I lived there and it had a huge impact on my, like who I am today. Uh, Venezuela is like the rest of Latin America, very warm country, very human, very, you know, uh, we're people, 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 no, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but it's like, you know, like we like reggaeton, we like, um, going to the beach. It's like really, really, um, you know, tropical kind of environment, uh, that I was raised in, but at the same time, it's a dangerous country. Um, it was dangerous when I was growing up, nothing compared to what it is today, which is like, I think that if you Google most dangerous country, uh, last time I did it was maybe a few months ago and it was Venezuela or or it's city and it would say Caracas. So, it is really dangerous um right now, but it was dangerous when I was growing up and as a fearful person myself, that was not helpful because um we I lived in a bubble my most of my life surrounded by adults. I like I never walked to my school and I lived only like 10 minutes away walking distance. Um, I never went to a mall by myself with my friends. Like when I was a teenager, you know, there always has to be an adult nearby. Uh, we always had to close our windows. And it was like, you know, for some people maybe it didn't affect them that much. But for me, I grew up being very fearful. And that was making it worse. And for example, I remember when I was little, I couldn't go to sleep because I wanted to make sure that nobody would break into my house because I knew that was a thing that could happen. And so I would stay awake for hours, just looking at the hallway from my bedroom, making sure nobody breaks into the house and nobody did. And eventually I I ended up closing my door so I could fall asleep. Uh, But... Yeah that, that that was my experience growing up and then at 19 I moved to the United States and it was really hard to understand that I'm safe here that I can walk to places that I can be by myself at night and mostly when I moved to New York that is looks like a dangerous city but it's actually a very safe city it took me years to understand that and feel actually safe going on the subway by myself mostly at night um And and just living my life like a normal person, not thinking that something bad will happen, like someone will rob me or kidnap me or something and... Yeah. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs>
2: yeah. No, uh, but and it raises many more as you might imagine. So you know, obviously, you know, I think we see uh, Venezuela on TV and like you just said, you know, you Google Venezuela and now it comes up as the most dangerous country on earth. I, I had a friend uh, who was from Venezuela when I was studying abroad in Brazil in 2008. And <clears throat> I think that, you know, when you, as somebody who grew up there, see kind of the way it's deteriorated, um, you know, like how does that, impact you when you think about the place that you're from. And also I know that, you know, like freedom of speech is not something that, uh, you know, you can take for granted in a place like that. And yet you're a creative person who's wrote a book. And I know part of this is about self-expression. What impact does, you know, being a part of a culture like that end up having on people's self-expression?
1: So it's really weird to miss a place that no longer exists Because even though Venezuela is still there, it is not the Venezuela that I grew up in. It's very different. It changed so much. I left in in 2007. When things were getting really bad, they were, they were already started to kidnap a lot of people, which was not the case when I was growing up. It was like a rare thing, but then it became something very common. Like my friends got kidnapped and friends of friends and family members and everybody started leaving. So I was one of the first ones to leave from my friends. And then eventually they all left to the point that I don't have anybody left in Venezuela right now. I don't have family members or friends. So if I would go back, I would not even have a place to stay. I would have to stay at a hotel. So it's that it's so weird. It's like, I want to go back. I miss it so much. I haven't been back since 2014. I went back for only a day for a wedding and that's it. So of course I miss it. And also my husband is from there. We met there. Uh, We spent our first year of our relationship there and then we left together and so we both miss it we both talk about it and actually a few days ago we were doing a meditation practice like a, with a journal exercise and one of the exercises was to write a letter to your country and it was like tears it was so sad and it's it, it it's it's hard because you no longer feel you belong anywhere like if i go mm-hmm. back i know i don't belong there it, it's you know i've grown so much it's been too many years since I left. And so it definitely, I'm not the same one that I was when I was there. And then I also don't, um, I live in the United States, but at the same time, I don't relate to a lot of the things in terms of culture, right? Um, wow. In terms of with what's happening with politics, I don't feel, like I can't vote here anyway. So, It's still, it's weird. And my parents moved to Panama, which is close to Venezuela. It's similar. A lot of Venezuelans move there. So when I go, I feel like I'm at home, but it's not my home and it's a different accent and different culture. So it is weird. Um, and I just had to figure out who I am on my own. Um, not as part of a country or a city, but when I am by myself, like who am I? And I started exploring that. And started uncovering who I was mostly when I moved to New York City in 2014. Um, And because New York is a place that allows you to be yourself, to really express yourself however you want. Nobody will judge you because everybody's so different. And that is the beauty of New York. So when you're there, you're in the subway or walking around, you see so many kinds of people. And that I love that. I love the difference and variety that Mm -hmm. you get on the street. And I wanted to be my own self when I was there. And so I think New York was a key part of my self-discovery journey.
2: Yeah. So when you are in a place, you know, where, so, you know, I think in many ways, uh, as we're seeing right now, we take freedom of speech for granted. I don't think I've ever seen in the history of this country, at least in the time I've lived here, a president try to block the publication of a book. Um, That to me was shocking. But you know, my guess is in a place like Venezuela, freedom of speech isn't something that is nearly as accessible. And so, so I wonder, like, you know, as you uh, sort of, you know, build this sort of bravery around self-expression, like, do you hold yourself back initially when it comes to this? Because I think that the funny thing is I know people here who, even though they have that freedom, are terrified to express a point of view if it's potentially polarizing.
1: Yeah, it is. It is still scary here. Like, it is scary anywhere to express your opinion um, wherever you are. And in Venezuela, you can't do it on, for example, public television, like national television, because it's not allowed. If you're against wow. the government, it's not going to fly. They ended up closing all of the programs and channels and that, that were against the government. But thanks to social media, that's not really a huge problem everybody has internet. Like I, well, I I can't say everybody has internet because there are some some like very poor uh, parts of the country, but I'm sure they have access somehow and they can, I think that Venezuela is the country where Twitter is like the most popular thing. Like everybody has Twitter, everybody communicates through there. And so social media is, Huge, huge in Venezuela because of that, because we don't have TV, because we can't communicate otherwise. But so far, they haven't blocked um, social media like they did in China or other countries. And so I guess we're lucky. Thank thank you, social media. Yeah. (laughs)
2: So, yeah, somebody who has seen what happens in that situation, do you look around at what's happening now in our country and wonder if, like, I I can't help but ask you, like, do you see signs, similarities, and the possibility of heading in a similar direction?
1: So many. It's so scary Um. for us living here because we left with the hopes of living the American dream and not having to worry about politics ever again, like politics that was topic in my entire upbringing, like in my home, we would talk about it every single day. The word Chavez, who's the uh, president, (laughs) like he's dead. That's why he's not the president, but he would be there. He said, he he even declared that he would be there until 2021. So we're not even in 2021 and, and, you know, but he's dead. (laughs) So he can't literally be there, but now his entire government is still there. And so uh, it was so good to move here. And then the Obamas won. And then we felt like, oh, we belong here. And then this whole thing happened. And politics, Uh again, is a huge topic. And I'm so tired of it.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, it's funny because I remember one of my, my, my friend from Venezuela, when I was studying abroad in Brazil, he said, yeah, he's like Chavez, is the kind of person who literally will just get on national TV and talk for three hours and or force five. the entire country to listen. Yeah. He was saying, you just hear these ridiculously long speeches.
1: Yeah. 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 Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I was still a kid. I grew up with this in mind, like hearing to politics. And, and just yesterday I was with my nephew who is four, no, he's six years old now. And he was Maduro is now the president, right? And he's like, we should kill Maduro. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we are in the United States. Why, Why do you even know these things? But it's inevitable.
2: Yeah. So speaking of the United States, so one of the things I always wonder uh, is when somebody comes from a new country to a place like here, what aspects of the culture did you find to be shocking? What did you find difficult to adapt to? Um, you know, when you contrast it, like what were the differences that you saw? And what do you find it, you know, like hardest? Uh, what, what did you find most difficult about the experience?
1: Um, well, my first city that I moved to was Savannah, Georgia. And oh, wow. so, yeah, and it was very, very different from where I come from. And at first it's like, oh, Savannah, what a cute town, you know, and you would only surround yourself with students because that's it. Like most of the town is just students and professors and that's it. But then I started to to realize the difference in like, for example, the bus drivers and, and how it was, I come from a country where like bus drivers are like the most uplifting and cheerful and like loving people and i don't know like it's like there's no racism or at least i didn't experience it when i was growing up um cuz there's no history of slavery like recent history of slavery the, the recent the history of slavery in my country is like really really old like when christopher columbus like christopher columbus sorry uh discovered america and whatever and so that's when it happened then it all went away and then I moved here and I was like, what's wrong with like some of the bus drivers? They're like being mean to me or, 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 or different. And I was like, I don't know. I don't understand what is happening. And then I started learning about racism. And it's not a topic I want to get into because I don't feel like right, right now. Yeah. And, and in everything that has been happening with BLM has been mm-hmm. teaching me so much. But I think that was my first reaction. Like, what is happening? And and I started learning about the history of the country. And wow, it was like very awakening for me and to see how recent everything was um, and how it still marks such difference today. Um, and I don't know, that was like the first shock. And then also in i feel in latin america we're very like real and vulnerable and if we feel something we say it and in the united states people are more reserved like mm-hmm. everything's fine or you know like it, they're not that expressive or not that vulnerable about how they feel and then i learned that vulnerability is like not a thing here and then you know brene brown if you follow her she started talking about vulnerability and she became this huge thing. And I don't think that would have been the case in, for example, Latin America or Venezuela. <laughs> right. We are a very vulnerable culture. Like we just say things as they are most of the time. Yeah. We we don't pretend everything's fine all the time. We're not taught that way. We're taught to like fight for our, whatever we want and speak up and be loud. <laughs> and so yeah. that was like another big difference. I'm like, Ooh, I'm, I'm very honest and transparent and vulnerable And people were surprised by that (laughs) with me. Mm
2: So I love the idea of, you know, this, you know, honesty, transparency, vulnerability and the willingness to speak up. And and it just, you know, makes a perfect segue to what I want to ask about next, which is what kind of advice did you get from your parents uh, about making your way in the world? Because, you know, like standard Indian parent narrative is go be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And speaking up is one of those things that's kind of a double edged sword with an Indian parent. You're like, OK, fine. <laughs> like you're 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 kind of taught to just keep quiet and listen when it comes to adults.
1: I grew up, and this also makes a difference with um, my mom is a therapist.
2: I remember that. And you know
1: how therapists are. They're yeah. like very open and they listen. That's what they do. They listen. So my mom encouraged me always to speak up and say how I feel and express what I want and express why I disagree with some things. And she was fine with that. And so I always had a voice in my family. And they always respected my desires and they always consult, like wanted to know what I wanted to do. And, and I, for example, like, I don't know, I think this is just a parenting style. My parents are not that strict, you know, like other parents, like my dad, they, they would allow a lot of self-expression. And I think that really helped me and shape my personality. Like I remember my dad every year wanted to paint the house and he would tell me, he would ask me like, which color do you want to paint your room? And every year I would just choose two colors that go well together, according to me, like a seven year old girl. <laughs> and they would never say, I don't know, Michelle, think about it. I don't think that's a good idea. He will always say like, sure. And he would take me to the, like the painting store, or whatever with a, where, where, where he would buy the paint and he would just say, choose whatever you want. And then I choose something and he literally buy it and he never like questioned my choices I would I could choose black you know and he would be okay with that (laughs) he's like then you're the one that has to live with that color for a whole year we're not painting it back you know and so that was really good and so I always chose what to do like Summers, I, I I was always a very artistic person. So I was like, Summer, I want to go to like ceramics camp or like painting camp or whatever. And they would just support me in all of those decisions, uh, which was really, really helpful.
2: Wow. So I, I, rem- I, I remember distinctly underlining this, the thing where you mentioned that your mom was a therapist. And, it, it, you know, it's funny because I've talked to people who have had parents who either were really heavily into personal development and, you know, encouraged them to export or, you know, same kind of like, you know, therapists. What I wonder are, is, are there ever moments with your mom where you have to say, okay, stop being a therapist and just be my mom? <laughs>
1: not really. I think that's her personality. Um, and it's hard, it's hard. Yes. Cause sometimes I'm yeah. like, you're just trying to analyze everything <laughs> I'm saying, but hear me out. And I think that if I would have chosen to be a therapist, I would have been a really good one. Cause I'm very good at, um, analyzing, understanding behavior, my behavior and other people's. And I love that topic. I, psychology in school was my favorite subject. And, and, and I don't know if it's related to my mom or not, but so because I have a really good understanding of it and I can articulate what I feel and how I'm perceiving the world in a really good way, then we could communicate like that and have a really good and deep conversations, which was really helpful when writing my book. She was a huge Help. And I surround myself with a lot of therapists. So I actually have a therapist that she read my entire book. My, one of my best friends is a therapist. She read uh, most of the chapters and then my mom. And so that was super helpful when writing a book about fear.
2: Yeah. So I know the other, the reason I think I underlined uh, when you mentioned that is that you said there's no taboo around therapy in our household, particularly because your mother was a therapist. Uh, Because, you know, in my culture, there's an incredible stigma around anything mental health related. I think we're finally Mm -hmm. getting past it. But in my parents' generation, it was just like, oh, therapy is for crazy people. And when I ended up in a therapist office at 36, I was like, why the hell did I wait so long to do this? I should have done this years ago. Uh, In it, like, I, I know you haven't grown up with your mom is probably different, but it, in the culture in general, in Latin America is, you know, is therapy stigmatized, uh, the way it is in other cultures or is it accepted?
1: I think it is, but like in the U.S. I would say, it's not yeah. like you, you you must be crazy in order to go to therapy. It's okay. A lot of people go and that's fine, but there is a taboo. It's not like everybody brags about it. Like, yeah, my therapy, like right now, I just talk about it very freely and. I want more people to be able to feel like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, and, and for example, I know in some countries in Latin America, I think in Argentina, it's like super popular and everybody goes, I don't know. Like I'm not from there, but that's what I hear. Uh, yeah. But I know that for example, in Asian cultures it's like out of the question. You don't share your problems with a stranger. Introducing
3: Wondersuite from Bluehost.com
4: Hello,
5: listener. Is it me you're looking for? As brands, we're always wanting to make a connection, to find the person you can rely on, the one that's there every week, month, or year, and always has your back when you need them the most. It's a little like matchmaking, don't you think? With Acas Podcast Ads, you can filter for your exact dream audience so you can find the ideal customer for your business. The Romeo to your Juliet, the Rachel to your Ross, the Bert to your Ernie,
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of which, so I think it's fascinating to me that you grew up with a mother who's a therapist and yet you're having to, you know, like confront this issue of fear? Because I think that a lot of people hearing that like, oh, you know, a mom is a therapist. It means I could solve every problem I ever have by the (laughs) time I get out of childhood, which I know is totally insane and unrealistic. But uh, what what in particular led you down this path of wanting to go so much deeper into fear and explore it? Like, what was the what planted the seed for this?
1: So this is not good publicity for my mom as a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) And she doesn't like this. She's like, Michelle, please be more careful. We don't want me to starve, you know, not have any clients (laughs) because of what you're sharing all over the Internet. Um, But the truth is that I inherited most of my fears from my mom. That's the truth. And she inherited those fears from her parents that are Holocaust survivors. So it's not really her fault. She was born in a house with a lot of trauma. My grandparents were in concentration camps for years and they lost most of their family members, like even their parents, in the camp. So that's very traumatic for anybody. And they were able to survive. And then they, they were taken to Venezuela. So super random country for them. They come from Europe. They didn't speak the language or understand the culture or anything. They had to start from zero, but they were full of fears and traumas. And then they had my mom and, and they raised her the best they could, but that's, that's it. That's the best they could, you know? So, um, so she grew up with all these traumas and then she never left the house until she got married. And then she had me and then, you know, that's what she knew. So even though she is a psychologist and and she could empower other people to understand their life better and want to face her own fears she's still a human so she has all of her this traumas of her own and it's inevitable every therapist is a human at the end of the day and they have to deal with their own stuff that doesn't mean that they are bad therapists or that they cannot help somebody else Uh, For example, I'm helping a lot of people overcome their fears while at the same time I'm dealing with a lot of fear myself. So I'm still a very fearful person, um, but I just challenge myself every day and then I will have the duty to raise courageous kids. But I have no idea uh, if I will be able to do a good job, but I'll try. (laughs)
2: Mm, wow, well, I, I think that makes uh, a perfect segue into uh, getting into you know the ideas of the book. Uh, so you know, I, I know that basically this all started with uh, you know a hundred day project. So take us there. I mean, talk to me about what made you say, okay, this is the project that I want to do. I mean, I think we have some context in terms of the background, but you know how did you even begin to tackle this?
1: Wow, so it was in twenty fifteen. I moved to New York only a few months before like prior to starting the project and i was studying branding at the school of visual arts i was doing a masters and it was in a class of self branding that i we had to do a 100 day project of our choice so we had to choose one thing we would we were going to do repeatedly for 100 days in a row and it could be anything as long as it's something that helps you grow or improve in some way and so i thought at first that i was going to do something related to branding maybe brand 100 I don't know, one, one, one company in 100 ways, right. Or, uh, go to 100 restaurants and analyze their brand and their food and whatever. But then what I realized is that the one thing that was keeping me from actually achieving my dreams and fulfilling my potential and enjoying New York to the fullest was my fears. Like not even the fear, but the unwillingness to go after my fears and always stay in my comfort zone. And so, that's when I decided that it was time for me at 26 years old to start facing one fear a day for the first time in my life. So I literally went from saying no thanks to everything that made me uncomfortable to saying, let me try. And that's how it all started. I I not only faced one fear a day, but I started recording myself on video and uploading these videos to YouTube. So every day I would, and I was working full-time in advertising and I was going to my master's in branding. And this was not even my thesis. It was This was just an additional project. So it was a lot to take on, but I knew that this had the potential to change my entire life and even my career. Because my idea was to graduate from the program, quit my job in advertising and find an amazing job in New York uh, outside of ad- advertising because I realized I don't like advertising. I wanted to find something either in branding or go work for a company that I love like Instagram or Google. Um, and since New York is so competitive, I needed to have an amazing portfolio. And I was like, I'm not only going to face my fears, but I'm going to put all of my skills into this project. So I'm going to uh, edit amazing videos. Even I started using stop motion and everything at the s- beginning of every video. Um, I did a blog. I created an emoji meter so I could measure the level of fear that I had before, during, and after each of the experiences. Um, I started using social media to promote it. So, and I wanted to create a community around the project. Of course, I started with like 10 followers, like friends and family, and that's it. But eventually the project went viral uh, around like fear number 40 or so. And I then really quickly went from like a couple dozen followers to thousands of followers. And that's when I realized the power that you can have when you face your fears uh, and how fear or how courage is so contagious. Yeah.
2: So. One of the uh, things you say at the beginning of the book is that fear is universal and also extremely personal. We each have our own comfort zones. We know exactly where they start and where they end. And they're unique to each individual, like your personality and your body is. So where was the edge of your comfort zone when you started this? And what is it now as a result of this project?
1: So at the beginning, my comfort zone ended like, yeah, ended whenever I st- experience a little bit of fear. Like yeah. I want to go in this direction. I have a little bit of fear, then I'm switching gears. I'm not going in that direction. Like that's simple. I'm not willing to experience fear. And there's that term for this is phobophobia, which is fear of being afraid. I, I wanted to avoid feeling that the fear, the feeling of fear, And so that was the end of my comfort zone. And now that is the beginning of my comfort zone. (laughs) Like when I know that something is scary and I have that feeling, it's for me a sign that that is the, that's the right path for me. That's where I should go. Of course, you have to be very analytical and, and real and down to earth. And if that path will lead you to like, death or harm or like, (laughs) you know, um, going broke or whatever it is that you don't want to, of course you have to make the right choice. But if that's not the end result, you know, and you, you may face failure, you may face rejection or heartbreak or disappointment, then it is worth the try.
2: Yeah. My, my litmus test is always jail, bankruptcy or death. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. If, you know, any of those three things are possible, maybe not worth going down this road. Uh, But yeah, it's, you know, I think it's fascinating. So what I wonder is, you know, people in a lot, you know, listening to this, many of them will hear you say that and they're like, wow, that sounds inspiring. That sounds amazing. And then life will go on as usual. Um, So, you know, if somebody is feeling that, what do you say to them? Uh, as somebody you know who has done this, you know a hundred days in a row, and, and it seems like you know now you've gotten to the point where I, you actually let that be your guide. Um, I think the average person that is precisely what inhibits them because you know we just you know recently did a launch about making ideas happen, you know, for our membership community. The most popular email out of all of them, the one that I got the response the most to, was finding the courage to pursue your ideas, and it was amazing how that inhibits so many people.
1: Wow, and. To me, it's so frustrating to see someone with potential, with skills, you know, everything that it takes, and then they still don't pursue their passion and, and their dreams because of fear, because of fear of failure, because of fear of getting rejected, a fear of real like imposter syndrome, also realizing they're not as good as, as, good as they thought. Whatever it is, that fear, uh, it is just a lie. We're telling ourselves and it's preventing us from at least trying these things. And for example, when I see someone close to me that is going through this and I know they have all the potential they need, I try to be there so much for that person. And every post that I write, I have that person in mind because I want that person to read it and get inspired. And I can say that I've inspired so many of my friends and close family members to dare to do things. They never thought that it it could actually become a reality. And they're experiencing right now that. And you have to see the messages that I receive from them, like crying, crying voice messages saying, thank you and and saying, I'm fulfilling my purpose because you fulfilled yours of inspiring me. And that it's amazing to inspire hundreds and thousands of people. But if you can inspire someone close to you, nothing compares to that.
2: Yeah. So the thing that's interesting, you also make uh, this distinction between, uh, you know, being fearless or brave. And you say that a person isn't either fearless or fearful. Fear is one of the things that makes us human. And I think that there is this sort of myth in culture of people being. You know, who do ambitious things or or do really crazy big things being absolutely fearless? You know, I've interviewed as an avid surfer, I've interviewed a few big wave surfers and, you know, I asked them, like, you know, is fear involved? They're like, yeah, if there was no fear involved, you'll do something really stupid in the water that Mm -hmm. might cause you to die. But how do you make that distinction, you know, between being fearless and being brave? Because I think that, you know, what I found is that there's a fine line between recklessness and a healthy capacity for risk.
1: Yeah. What I believe is that the word fearless is sort of trendy right now and people love to use it. And a lot of clients call me and say that they want me to talk about fearless leadership and teach their employees how to be fearless. And I don't think that's the point. Why do you want to be fearless? That's literally impossible because whatever we do, fear will always be there. Like if we have a new idea, then a new fear will come up as well. You know, it's just, or, or if you start a new job, you will have new, a new set of fears. Or if you want to uh, climb higher, then new set of fears will come. You won't ever be fearless. Like, you know, it's it's literally not possible, but it is possible to learn how to live with our fears, embrace them and negotiate with our fears. Like actually, have this conversation. And that is exactly why my brand is called Hello Fears and not Goodbye Fears. You know, the Mm -hmm. other day, a little kid asked me, like, I, I told her something about Hello Fears. She was like four years old. And she's like, why not Goodbye Fears? And that left me thinking. I'm like, ooh, why not goodbye fears? (laughs) She made me question (laughs) my entire brand (laughs) and my book. And then I thought about it and I'm like, when you say goodbye to something, you're closing the door. You're giving your back to that. You're like waving goodbye, ignoring that. But when you say hello, it's like when you knock on the door, you open the door, you embrace it. And fear, like I'm saying, will always be there. So why not learn how to live with that? And even my project, my project was called 100 Days Without Fear. And that's not right. Now, looking back, it was 100 days of plenty of fear. It's the most fear I've experienced in my life. So, you know, and I even used the word fearless a lot at the beginning of the project until people started calling me the fearless girl. And then I felt as if I couldn't Fit the definition of fearless girl, because I'm like, I'm full of fear. Like, I don't know what they mean by being fearless. Just because I'm facing my fears, that makes me fearless? Hell no, I'm still experiencing fear every single day. And then that's when I started using the word brave or courageous instead of fearless and created this whole movement against the word fearless. Uh, Because I think that being brave is when despite the fear, you have the courage to take action. And that is more powerful and inspiring than being brave. And for example, when I uh, wanted to go skydiving as one of my fears, I started researching skydiving videos. And most of the videos I found were people that were fearless in terms of like, they were not afraid of jumping. That's why, I don't know, maybe those were the most popular videos on YouTube. And so I couldn't relate to them. Because they were so excited. They're like, yeah, they went and they ran and they jumped from the plane. And I'm like, I can't relate to that. I, I can't even feel inspired by that. So I wanted, that's why I wanted to show my process and document my, all of my fears on video so people could see me scared and facing my fears at the same time. And that is exactly what inspired so many people to go after their own fears.
2: So this is just out of morbid curiosity. What was the scariest one of all to you?
1: That's such a hard question for me to answer every time, because it depends on so many things. And I think the most important thing is the expectations. So if Mm. you expect something to be easy, and when you get there, it's really scary, then something that you thought was, you know, sort of inside of your conference and not that bad becomes the hardest fear to face. And then when there's a fear that is in your mind is crazy scary and you do it and it's not that bad. You're like, huh. So it's hard to measure, you know, the the project in that way. And if you ask me, for example, which one was the scariest before facing it or during or after, the answer will completely change. So to give you an example, before facing it, I think holding a tarantula was the scariest one. That was not even... (laughs) part of my list. I was like, I'm not holding a tarantula for this project. I'm ignoring that I have that fear like everybody else, of course, (laughs) and I don't need to, you know, do it. I'll just face another hundred fears. And then one day I visited my brother in Savannah because he was there studying and, um, he was his graduation and I went and he's like, Oh, my roommate has a tarantula. You should hold it. And I was in the (laughs) middle of the project. And I was like, how can I say no to this? Like literally God put this tarantula here so I can face my fear. And I thought my heart was going to jump off my chest. It was like horrible. I thought I was going to die. It was going to be the worst experience of my life. And then I held the tarantula and it was so nice. It was so delicate, elegant as she was like crawling up my arm. I was not uncomfortable at all. I was like, that's it? This is not, I even considered getting a tarantula. I'm like, that would be cool. The fear
4: girl <laughs>
1: has a tarantula as a pet. I think that goes with the brand now. Um, But then other fears that I thought were going to be easier, like for example, doing trapeze. I was uh-huh. like, that sounds fun, trapeze. Of course, I've never done it outside of my comfort zone, but let me try it. And then when I went there, I was like, I was in shock. I was panicked. I was like, you know, this is not easy, And I did skydiving the day before. And I was like, this is worse than skydiving. This is so hard. And yeah, it's all a matter of expectations.
2: Mm, wow. So you know, the other thing that I, you know, that really struck me was you make this distinction and you made a good, you you made a point to spend a lot of time talking about this is the difference between comfort and happiness. You said that most people tend to seek comfort, not happiness, two things that can easily get confused for some comfort is happiness. The more comfortable they are, the less challenged they feel and the happier they believe they are. And, you know it's funny because I think that it's such a fitting quote given that we're in the midst of a crisis. Like I've realized the biggest changes I've ever made in my life always come in periods of immense discomfort. Um, you know, like graduating into a recession after finishing business mm-hmm. school was the only re- is the only reason unmistakable creative exists today. Like had that not happened, I think I would have stayed mm-hmm. in a situation of comfort. So uh, two things come from that. Um, One, how do people recognize that they are making, they're confusing the two? And, Mm -hmm. you know, if people don't have something that is, you know, putting them in a position of discomfort, what can they do to catalyze that change?
1: Yeah. So in my case, I was checking society's boxes like I was expected to. I went to college. Graduated with a really good GPA, two majors, well, major, minor. Um, I went to, I found a really good job in advertising. I went at the best agencies in Miami, in um, a really good position, good salary, everything. And then I got married to an amazing man. So I was doing everything I was expected to. And I was checking these boxes. And then I'm like, what is next to have children and then grandchildren and then die? that's it. So I started having panic attacks, literally about that. Cause I was like, I don't get it. What's next in my life. Like I'm only 23 by 23 years old. I was already married. Good job. You know, everything I had to accomplish by that time I did it. And then I was like lost. I'm like, I still have like, hopefully at least, I don't know, 60 or um, 50 more years of life, what I'm going to do. And, and I'm like, is this, happiness? Like, I, I mean, I'm comfortable, but am I happy? That That's the question I started asking myself. And I looked around and my friends, they all seemed okay living that kind of life. They all started buying houses. They started getting pregnant. And I'm like, I don't know. I started questioning a lot. And I'm like, I don't know if this is real happiness. And that's when I started going to therapy. Mm. And in therapy, I realized that I needed more challenges in my life and that I was not happy with so much comfort around me. Um, I felt like I was way too young to be experiencing that kind of comfort. Like I already had a two bedroom, two bathroom, nice apartment in a really nice building in a nice area. And I'm like, what? What? what's there to look forward to if I already have all the things I want or need right now? And so that is when I made the decision to move to New York. And I was like, I need discomfort in my life. I need to hustle, I because also, I I had a had I was very ambitious and I'm I'm still very ambitious and I was not fulfilling that ambition because I was too comfortable and mm-hmm. I, I I remember like one of the triggers was going to the movie theater to watch the movie Jobs the one with Ashton Kutcher mm-hmm. that he's yeah. like Steve Jobs yeah and I was like he made a huge dent in the world he changed the world and what am I doing. Right. So I started questioning that. And I was like, this is not the life that I want for myself. I want the discomfort right now. And I want to achieve bigger things. And that's when I moved to New York. So to your original question, uh, it is a matter of being really honest with yourself, asking Mm -hmm. yourself, are you living your best life right now? Not according to paper. Not according to society, not according what other people expect of you and what you had to accomplish by this point in your life, but according to your feelings, according to your every day. And a good way to look at this is, are you always looking forward to the weekend? Because if your life is all about looking forward to the weekend or to vacation time, then you're definitely not living your best life. Because I believe that my best life is when I enjoy my day to day. And I was not enjoying my day to day. I was going to a job that didn't make me happy. And I wanted that job because I wanted to make my family happy and my professors at school super proud of my, you know, like I wanted to make them proud and, and say, this girl graduated from the school and now is going to this amazing, working at this amazing agency. And, but I didn't, those choices were not based on my own happiness. It was based on somebody else's happiness that I thought could make me happy. But on the day-to-day, I was not experiencing that kind of happiness. And it's a matter of being really honest.
2: Yeah. So I I appreciate this on numerous levels, you know, because I know that you said later in the book that, you know, defining what success means for us is literally the most important thing we have to do in order to know where we want to go in life. And I think that, you know, that is particularly challenging because not only do you have definitions that come from, you know, sort of parents and peers and, and society, you get definitions coming from people like you who come to shows like mine, who you know read books mm-hmm. like yours, read books like mine, and I think that one of the things i 've seen happen um is that in many ways, like we've traded in you know society's definition of success mm-hmm. for some internet celebrities' definition of success, like mm-hmm. oh, this is the Tim Ferriss definition of success, so yeah. we claim that we're succeeding on our own terms yet that whole idea of succeeding on our own terms has been handed to us by somebody else, mm-hmm. and I wonder. How in that situation you can have the coexistence of both fulfillment and ambition? Because I think that often we're ambitious to the point where we're perpetually unfulfilled. I know this from my own experience, and even Ryan Holiday, uh, when mm-hmm. he was here, he said, you know, like people think that there's this sort of next level of significance, you know, like where you get to sort of, hey, you know, I'm no longer senator, I'm the president, I'm no longer just an author who got, who got published, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. Mm-hmm. And he said, and that's that belief is good on. You know the aggregate because it fuels achievement. He said otherwise, nobody who's senator would run for president, vice, and et cetera, et cetera. But he said on the aggregate level, it's a lie. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, having you know said what you did about ambition and and you know fulfillment, how can you can the two coexist without you losing your mind? And if so, how?
1: This is a really great question. I love this conversation and where this is going. And it is true. And you know what? I even had that problem with some people that were following me that they were like, Michelle, you're constantly pushing us to want more and do more. But what if I'm happy just having a normal job, being married to this normal husband and, you know, having my kids and that's it, you know, is there something wrong with that? Like, I feel like you're pushing us sometimes to all become, you know, this influencers or whatever, or, or achieve unimaginable dreams. And that made me realize that I, whenever I speak, I also have to be very like inclusive of everybody's dreams. And if your dream is to maybe be a stay at home mom, that's perfectly accepted. Like that's fine. That's great. And I don't know, it just shifted a little bit my speech also and how I talk. And I say like, if, being, for example, a stay-at-home mom and you're doing this just because your husband is expecting you to do this, that's not right. But if you're doing it because you're so happy doing it and that's, you know, you're fulfilling your own definition of success, that's amazing. And I'm so happy for you. So it is not a matter of like what I say is success or my own definition, but a matter of discovering your own and having the courage to pursue that. Even if, That definition is being a stay-at-home mom or just having a very normal, you know, job, but but then, you know, enjoying your life on the day-to-day with your family. And that's perfectly fine. So I think that's that's a great question. Oh, and I wanted to go somewhere else with this and I forgot. Do you have...
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, no, I mean, we're talking sort of about the, the sort of next level achievement, right? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think there's that too, right? We sort of, in a lot of ways, sometimes I think that, you know, and I, I've said, I'm probably guilty of it too, that part of what this sort of culture of, you know, self-help and internet celebrities is do- has done is to plant seeds of dissatisfaction where there weren't any before.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I feel like I have too much to say and I don't know where, like, where to start. Say so whatever comes to your mind.
2: Uh, you know, um. Uh,
1: wait, I'm thinking, I don't know what I, I wanted to say something I forgot. What was it about the definition of success? And well, yeah, like, okay. So also I think a really important thing is that we need to understand what are the main things that we value. So when we like we um, aspire for more, we don't lose those things in the way. And I don't know if that was clear, but I'll give you an example. Me and my husband, we work together and we value freedom a lot. Both of us is one of our values as individuals and as a couple. So in one way, we wanted to grow and crush it and, you know, become this next big thing. But on the other hand, what we realize is that by doing that, we're, we will be losing our freedom because then we will have a huge team of people, and then we may even have to find a to, to have a headquarters and offices and you know employees and all of that, and then grow, grow, grow to the point that you have so many people to manage and so many things that you take take that you have to take care of. That at the end of the day, you don't you're not free. You're not the owner of your own time. And so when we had this realization, we understood that, yes, we want to grow, but to a certain point, we don't want to like build an empire. We just want to continue speaking and, you know, having a good life, but we don't need that. For example, a point of like comparison to us is the Hollis, like Rachel and Dave Hollis. She's also a speaker. She then wrote a book. She became a bestseller. And after that, in two years, they started building a huge empire. They hire 50 people. They moved from California to Texas. They have offices. They started doing their own events. And for us, on the outside, it's like, yeah, that looks amazing. But at the same time, we understand that they're not completely owners of their own time. They have so much going on and that is not the kind of life that we want. So it's a balance of, yes, we want more. And definitely I want my book to do very well and hit the New York Times bestseller list. But at the same time, I want to have control of my life and not just because I achieve these things change my entire life around it. Another example that I have as a reference in my life is Brene Brown, that even though she is an amazing um, now celebrity in the self help world, and you know, her books are doing so good at the same time. She has a lot of boundaries and she's a lot. She looks like she's home a lot with her family, and she's, you know, I think she still teaches for yeah. university. And so, and I respect that a lot. And I know that because we're represented by the same agent. So, mm-hmm. and, and I, I love that about her. Like, even though, yeah, she achieves so much success, she still wants to keep her life uh, be the owner of her own time.
2: Yeah, it's it's funny you talk about that because I think people often don't see that, you know, by the way, when you have this big thing that you think you want, like there's a downside to all of it and like anything you get. I remember one of my old mentors who we had as a guest on the show here said, OK, you want a TV show? He's like, great. He's like, guess what? He's like, now you can't go out in public anymore or go to mm-hmm. a restaurant without people bothering you. He said for every single thing, there's sort of a counterintention that comes with it that you never think about, uh, you know, like you get to a sort of celebrity level. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of, you know, you mentioned boundaries, but it is it is interesting because I think, you know, you see something like Rachel Hollis and we only see what they show the world to the outside. Mm -hmm. You don't see what happens behind the scenes. Um, Well,
1: there's an article from Tim Ferriss. I don't know if you read it like it's from a few months ago saying all of the downside of being famous and all of the publicity and how he, he had to take care of himself so much and how he can't just checking into any hotel and all these things that got me thinking a lot. Because I was the person that, oh, yes, I want to achieve more. Yes, I want to become this, you know, well-known person that everybody knows who I am. But at the same time, reading those things brings you down to earth. And you're like, do I want that? Really? And I don't know anymore. Also, another thing is that Uh, For example, in Instagram, we all want more followers, right? We want to grow our community. But I am at one point right now, I have 90,000 followers where I get to engage with my followers. I know them. I know their stories. I answer all of the DMs that I get. And yes, it is a little bit overwhelming, but I enjoy it so much that it's part of my definition of success, to have the time to uh, interact personally with my followers. I know their their handles, their little picture, like, and, and <laughs> I love that, that, that interaction. And then when you look at, for example, Rachel Holly's 2.8 million followers. And I read in the comments, some people say to her, I remember when you used to remember, w- when you used to answer my DMs and just reading that made yeah. me realize that I don't know if I want to grow that much because I want to continue this um, relationship with my
4: followers.
2: So it's funny because it, it makes me think of, of something. You know, when my mentor said, "So we raised a you know an investor around sometime last year uh, from you know Pod Radio Public's venture fund who was investing in, in podcasts." And you know, I was talking to him earlier this year. I said, "What do you think about you know a Series A?" And he asked me. He said, "Do you want to build like a massive team that requires you to be at an office every day?" He said, "Because once you do that, there's no going back." Mm-hmm. Um, he said, "Your investors." in a series a are not going to just be like oh let's make this thing mm-hmm. profitable they're going to basically look for we don't want profit we want a 500x return and mm-hmm. he said and that fundamentally will alter everything and you know the more I th- it was i mean and i was like wow okay <laughs> that's you, you don't think about that you you think that oh like i'm going to have this huge sort of you know moment in, in the spotlight but then you don't f- you forget that by the way after this comes immense amounts of work mm-hmm. and sacrifice that nobody ever sees
1: Exactly and that is what I I wrote chapter 9 of my book Hello Success where I talk all about um that and I I ask people to imagine their best possible life and then double that and then I'm like does that cause you happiness or anxiety yeah. and then if that the answer is anxiety then go back and reimagine that and like we were saying you need to accurately define your what success means to you and what success doesn't mean to you. And we realized that the freedom was so important and that not having that was going to be like a really bad thing for our relationship. And we value our relationship above all. Like when we decided to work together, we said we are the moment this is not working for us as a couple, we will stop working together. So our relationship is more important to us than our job and whatever we do.
2: Hmm. You offered this really uh, extensive, uh, really comprehensive framework that I thought summed up this process really nicely. Basically, the six stage process of overcoming any fear. Can you walk us through that?
1: Yeah. So uh, this process is something that I discovered along the way as I was facing my own fears. And what I realized is that it doesn't matter how many fears you face, you always go through the same process, like it or not. Um I faced a hundred and by the end, I was still going through the same six stages. And so the first one is the discovery stage. And this is when you realize that you are afraid of something that you maybe never considered before right? Like for example, you know, when that, that you're afraid of this and this thing for your entire life, but there are some things that are outside of your comfort zone that you never consider. Like for example, when, um, if someone texts you right now and tells you, Hey man, I think that it would be great if next year we go together in the summer to Africa to volunteer, you know, and build some houses, something like that. Right. And you're like, Whoa, let me think about it. If you're reaction would be like, yeah, let's do it immediately, then that's not a fear. Then we're not in the process, (laughs) right? It's like when someone asks you, hey, do you want to go for coffee tomorrow? And you're like, sure, let's go for coffee. You don't even have to think about it, right? That's inside of your comfort zone and you react like that. But if your reaction is like, ooh, okay, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. Then that means that whatever this person suggested is outside of your comfort zone and you you just realize that, hmm, I'm not sure if I want to go in that route. And then after that stage, the discovery stage, we go into the denial stage. And that's the part when we kind of make up excuses why we shouldn't do that thing, why it's not a good idea. And we say things like, uh, maybe that's not for me, or this is not the right timing. And it's just excuses, right? It's our fear talking, saying, don't do it. <laughs> you will regret it, you know, all these things. Um, And so most of the people just stay in that stage, in the denial stage, and they continue with their life. They go answer an email, forget about that, and say, sorry, man, I don't think it's a good idea. And that's it. Uh, some people decide to come back to the idea and they're like, but what if that experience shaped my entire life? Or what if that experience Um, you know, gets me to where I, closer to where I want to be or, and they start considering the idea and that gets them into the determination stage. And then that's when they are determined that hmm, maybe they do want to face that fear, take that risk. And so they make all the arrangements necessary. They make all the plans they need to do in order to go face that fear, take action. And then before going into the action stage, which is what you would assume comes next, there's a stage in the middle that is really hard to avoid. And it's called, I called it the WTF. Am I doing stage? And that's when you start questioning your decision to face that fear and you start freaking out and you're like, maybe that was a really bad idea. I should say, say no to this, you know, and it's that moment when you're literally about to get, give the step for For example, let's say you want to ask your partner for a divorce. You're about to say it. And in that moment, you start to regret it. You start thinking of all the worst possible cases, case scenarios. And you're like, that was a terrible idea. I shouldn't say that. Or you're about to go into your boss's office to ask for a raise. And you're like, "Mm, maybe not. That was a terrible idea. And then you start canceling your appointment. Never mind. I figure it out. (laughs) Um, So the majority of the people just stay there. Um, they freak out, they regret it, and then they step away. But then only the brave ones are those who decide to move past that stage and go and take action. And then that lands them into the action stage. That's when you literally like pray to God and do it. <laughs> it's it, most of the time lasts only a few seconds, the action stage, or it depends on the fear, of course, but it's like the first few seconds that are like the worst one. And then you just continue with that. And then at the end, you arrive into the celebratory stage. And the celebratory stage is when you experience what feeling proud of yourself feels like. Because I can tell you that I graduated with a really good GPA. I found a really good job. I got married and I did all those things, but I never actually experienced what being proud of myself feels like. Um, I felt like all those things were things I had to do in order to move on with my life. Like those were the things that I was expected to do by my, I guess, from me and other people. But it was only when I started to face my fears and achieve things that I, I didn't knew were possible That's when I started to experience what feeling proud of myself actually feels like.
2: Wow. Wow. Um, Well, this has been absolutely incredible. Like, it's funny because I have so many more notes from your book and I feel like I could talk to you for two hours if we really wanted to keep going. Um, But uh, I want to finish with uh, one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it's how much they believe in themselves like the confidence they have in themselves, in their potential, in their dreams. I think I think that's what makes them unmistakable. I have this quote in my book, really big. It's one of my favorite pages. Um, and then I turned that into a sticker that I have everywhere that it says, when you believe in yourself so much, you make others believe in you as well. And I think that is a huge superpower, confidence. When you when you believe that you can actually achieve something and you see it before it is a reality, that's when other people will also support you in this process and want to be there for you and want to see you succeed. And you know, the typical quote that says, fake it until you make it. I turned that around into believe it until you become it. And that's what I think I've done with my new career of becoming a motivational speaker, writing a book, leading a community. Those were things that I envisioned a long time ago. And I believe that these, they were a possibility. And there are still so many things that I have in my head that I want to accomplish and that I'm not there yet, but I don't have any doubt in my body that I can become that.
2: Ah, Amazing. Uh, Well, I can see now why Patrick referred you to us. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your uh, book, your work, and everything else that you're up to?
1: Uh, Definitely go to Hello Fears on Instagram. I'm Hello Fears everywhere. If you want to watch the 100-day videos, um, watch me embarrass myself (laughs) over 100 times and that's fun you can go to youtube hello fears but i'm always on instagram i'm like i was saying before very active always engaging with my followers and and trying to be there for for everybody that are people that are Uncomfortable with so much comfort around them. Like I'm there to push you to get out of your comfort zone and actually become the person you want to be. And if you want to get the book, you can of course go to Amazon or my website, hellofiercebook.com. Uh, you'll be able to have so many resources there and reviews and it's, it's a fun page to visit. So you're welcome to go there. And if you speak Spanish, I have a podcast too. It's called avión from the plane. And it's cool because I only record conversations with my husband from the plane, like when we travel.
2: <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
4: Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class, all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.
5: Marketers and advertisers, brands big and small. You've been after a special someone for a while now. You think they're into you. I mean, you share the same interests, both passionate about the same stuff. Why wouldn't they be? Wait. There's a moment of silence. It's finally just you two alone. They're waiting. Go on, shoot your shot. You've got a voice. Use it now. Hearts are racing. Breathing becomes heavier. This is your chance to win them over. So what are you going to say? Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? What if you could turn that fear into creative fuel?